Hi everybody, Jed Ayers here, and welcome to another episode of The Attic. And visiting us today in The Attic is a very special guest, Nabil Yoakum of Tahama. Nabil is the Chief Development Officer for Tahama, which is a very interesting startup born out of a database services solution that was handling super high security confidential contracts using a homegrown DAS platform. Nabil is the perfect guest to help us understand their unique product. He has decades of experience in the end user computing industry. And prior to joining Tahama, he spent 22 years at Citrix in executive leadership positions. One of his key contributions was managing the Citrix Alliance with Microsoft, including the time when it wasn't clear if Microsoft was gonna squash Citrix, a time when they almost went under. Nabil has been at Microsoft earlier in his career, so I'm very interested to hear how Nabil's leadership at Citrix helped them survive. He's always a dynamic presence at EUC events and someone who I'm really looking forward to catching up with. All right, well, hey, Nabil, welcome to the attic. We're so excited to have you here today. Uh, really wonderful that you could join us. G'day, Jed. It's really a pleasure to be here. It really yeah, is well, good to talk to you guys. It was uh, fun to ha uh, have lunch with you and see you at HIMSS a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. I think that was the first really large event that I've been to since uh, we saw each other in Nashville at uh, Dis Disrupt, which I guess was almost two years ago, if you can believe yeah. that. Yeah, HIMSS was exciting for all of us. I mean, we were all sort of getting on the plane for the first time, going to a big conference in Vegas of all places. But I think they pulled it off. I mean, I was worried even 24 hours beforehand. Do we go or don't we go? And we all went. Yes, it was great. And I, you know, for for us, obviously, there was a way fewer customers there, but uh, we had a pavilion with nine partners in our booth, and you, uh, Tahama and your new company, you were part of it. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, as much as uh, we got to see customers, it was great to also reconnect with the EUC community and our iGel Ready partners. So, I'm totally excited to talk to you about uh, Tahama because, uh, you know, new exciting role for you in this company. and. Uh, you know, certainly when we had lunch together, you explained to me Tahama in a way that I had never heard of it before. I always thought of it as sort of as a straightforward DAS player. And uh, the way you explained it was uh, totally different than it, any way I'd heard it before. So I'm excited for everyone that's listening to The Attic to hear, hear it from, uh, from you and sort of the way that you're positioning it and the vision that you have in terms of where you can take it. But uh, because this is The Attic, yeah, we want to talk about uh, Nabil and your origin story and some of the insights that you have around partnership and leadership. And, uh, you know, that's the fun part of this. It's not all tech. Um, it, a lot of it's more of the leadership and partnership and the wisdom that you have uh, in the, I guess, almost three decades probably of uh, being in the tech space. You're very kind to say to only three decades. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, let's start at the beginning of those uh, decades then. I know anyone that listens to you speak knows you have an uh, Australian accent, but tell us about your, uh, where, where you grew up and where you were born. Yeah, most people uh, start with South Africa and then they go to New Zealand and they go to, sometimes to the UK before they pick Australia. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Maybe I don't look Australian. That's because I wasn't born in Australia. Okay. I actually was born in the Middle East. I was born in Jordan, Amman, wow. Jordan, some time ago now, but my parents left there in um, the early 60s and migrated to Australia. And obviously, I've lived in Australia ever since I was a young boy. Wow. And so are you still, are you bilingual? I am. I speak Arabic fluently. I can't read or write, but I do speak it fluently. 
Wow, that's great. I guess you, you keep what you learned before you were five or whatever, and then you moved uh, and you picked up that wonderful Australian accent. Well, I give the credit to my parents. They kept speaking to me in Arabic as I was younger and allowing me to mix with some of the community, the Jordanian, Palestinian community in Australia that allowed me to keep my Arabic going. And so why did you move? Why did your pa parents move to Australia? You know, it was just uh, the idea of a better world. I mean, uh, the, the Middle East and the Arab world was a very tough place for uh, us to live, uh, for my parents to, to be there. And they thought you know, they'd try something different. Australia was offering practically free passage to Australia for new immigrants. And my father said, let's give it a go. We'll go over there for six months. If we don't like it, we can always come back. And obviously we, mm -hmm. we never came back. We loved it right. so much. It was a, such a great country. I like very much, you know, America it was in the early fifties and sixties, you know, a great place, a lot of opportunity for everyone and anyone to work. Anyone who worked hard, we could make a great living. And, uh, we, we stayed there. We, we pulled a lot of our family, actually, from the Middle East. Uh, my father's uh, siblings, my mother's siblings, a lot of them moved to Australia with us. And what city did you live in? Originally, we went to Melbourne, and my mother said it's too cold in Melbourne. I mean, it's not as cold as some Ottawa, where I am now, based right. out of with the Tahima. But it was cold enough for my mum coming out of the Middle East. So we tried Melbourne for about four months. We said, no, it's not going to work. So we moved to Sydney. And we ended up loving Sydney. It was the middle of the summertime. It was great. It was a great Arabic community around us. So my mom felt comfortable there. And that's where I grew up. I learned to play rugby league. Maybe we'll talk about sport later on, but yes. I'm a rugby player. And it was a great place to, to bring up kids and bring up a family. So, and how many uh, in your family? How, you have brothers or sisters? I have a younger brother who's 11 years younger than me, just the two of us. Okay, great. And so uh, what did your parents do in Sydney or what was their occupation? My father was an electrician and he ended up working for a company called Otis, the elevator company. Oh, yeah. He was an electrician, so he used to go on, he used to go on calls and it was a lot of fun riding on top of the elevator, not inside <laughs> it. And my mother just worked in a factory. She was a machinist. She got a, became an expert at making shoes, using the specialized machines to make shoes. And she became a very much a specialist in her industry for a long, long time. But yeah, just normal sort of you know, good trade people. And they uh, built an amazing lifestyle for my brother and myself and uh, brought the rest of the family out. That's great. And so what were you like as a kid? What were you into? Were you uh, surfing the waves of the Sydney beaches there? And Yeah, we, we lived about 50 minutes from the beach. So it was a bus ride. So I'd get on the bus every weekend and we'd go down the beach and hang out, of course. That was a lot of fun. That's the best yeah. thing to do in Sydney. But I also played rugby. I played rugby league, which is a version of rugby that uh, is played here in the U.S. And I was part of the uh, the Red Fern of the South Sydney Club, and I ended up um, doing quite well with it. Actually, I nearly stayed into the sort of into the major league component of the game, but I broke too many bones when I was much older. And my mother said, "That's it, boy. You're going to get out of here." Yeah. Well, your nose still looks like it's uh, straight, so no one got that. Huh? <laughs> Thank you. I didn't break it. <laughs> my nose broke, my ankle broke, I had a couple of ribs go. And, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the rugby play. It's a rough, rough game. Yeah. They don't have all the padding that you have in the NFL here. But, uh, you know, it's a, I, I love the game. I still watch it live. It, right now it's the finals in Australia for the final uh, six uh, teams in the, in, the, in the competition. So, and my team is in the finals. So I'm still watching it every night at about 3 a.m. in the morning. All right, right. You got to get up super early. So tell us about the path that leads you from rugby uh, to technology. How did you get into, into the world of tech? 
Well, you know, at high school, uh, we were looking into where to go to uh, university, as they call it over there, rather than college. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine and myself saw this notice in the notice board saying computer science. And we thought, I wonder what that is. So we applied and uh, we got in. And uh, so I ended up going to University of Technology, Sydney, studying computer science in the in the 70s. Wow. Some time back now, but it was it was a, uh, a discipline back then. Yeah, that's great. And so uh, you graduate from uh, from the university, and where do you go from there? So I, as part of the uh, the university program, there was one year of internship, and I got taken up by Burroughs. Uh, Burroughs again was a big mainframe manufacturer back then. Uh, they've now called uh, Unisys. They merged with a company called Sperry. So I joined Burroughs in their um, you know technical side of the of the business. Uh, you know, installing mainframes, uh, showing mainframes, demonstrating mainframes, and working with customers using mainframe computers. That's great. So uh, we come full circle uh, in your career in end user compute. It's great. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Of course, at the end of the mainframe was a dumb, dumb terminal that right. connected and everything ran, ran centrally. So you're right. I mean, I, I've been in technology all my career. I've been on the vendor side all my career as well. It's really interesting. I was just thinking about that the other day, I've really been on the one side of technology, sort of selling it, marketing it, installing it. And mm -hmm. it's been a lot of fun. Technology has been a great industry, of course. So how did you get from Burrow selling mainframes to the biggest PC maker? You ended up at Microsoft, right? How did, how did that Correct. work? So after 10 years of Burrows, I got uh, pulled out of there by uh, one of their partners actually selling illegal accounting software. And I said, you're a great salesperson, Nabil come join our team. And it was time to leave Burroughs after 10 years. Mm -hmm. At that time, they'd already merged with Sperry, became Unisys, and they were getting more and more of a services company than a mainframe computer company. Anyway, I left them. I joined this uh, partner called Law Data Services. I wasn't there for very long, and I moved out of there and joined another company selling digital VAC systems, so mini computers. And then Microsoft came along looking for a database expert. One of my specialities is, is database. And they was just about to come out with a product called Microsoft Access. Oh, yes. And they hired me as a product manager to be a database expert and, and launch Microsoft Access in Australia. So that's how I got into Microsoft through my database skill set, which, you know, was pretty average. It wasn't great. But at Microsoft, they're all about Word and Excel. And uh, that's about it at the time. So they really were looking for more technically competent salespeople. And I joined as a product manager back in 1992. Wow. Okay. And so uh, tell us how you, how do you end up in the United States and how do you end up at Citrix? So at, um, I was at Microsoft for six years and I moved on to be a director of product management at Microsoft and running one of the divisions, uh, selling to the mid market and looking after resellers actually, what okay. they call their organization customer unit. And I met with a team from Citrix who'd come out uh, in about 97. They came out to Australia to promote Citrix, they were doing the obviously the uh, Windows NT uh, embedded thing that they were doing. And I sat down, I listened to their presentation, and they said, well, what do you think? Can we work with you? And I said to them bluntly, no. You are a competitor to what I want to do in Australia. You're selling an OEM version, which all the money goes back to the US. Well, I'm selling a local Windows version of Windows NT and Windows Server, and I need to get the money locally. So it was a really a, <laughs> a very tough, interesting conversation call, I had yeah. with them. They were, they said, you're the first person that actually been direct with us about this uh, conversation. Thank you very much. And they went away. And then about four months later, they came and said, well, we're actually going to hire someone in Australia to run the Asia Pacific region. 
Would you like to apply for the job? Interesting. So having an opinion, and uh, I'm sure that probably uh, left them. Just being honest with them, really. Yeah. It, was, it was about being just saying, you're the first person that's ever told us that at Microsoft. I said, well, that's the truth. I mean, you, you talk to Microsoft corporate, of course they want to work with you because they run the corporate program and they're happy for you to OEM Windows. But you talk to a subsidiary like I am in Australia and you're really a competitor in the market. So right. just FYI. So, so you uh, take on the Citrix brand in uh, APAC and help them launch that? Is that that's sort of your yeah. initial resignment at Citrix? Yeah, Citrix has acquired a company in Australia called Datapack. Uh, There's 27 people. And they wanted to come to bring someone on board to run that company. They had some technology, but also a go-to-market sales team. So they wanted someone to run that company and grow the Asia-Pacific region for Citrix. So I was employee number 350 at Citrix. I was hired to really grow the Asia-Pacific business of sales and services. And, you know, I, I went about building the business in Singapore and we got into China and India and Korea and I you know, developed the Australian market and built a team of sales and marketing people uh, selling the Citrix technology for about five years. I was in Australia before I got the uh, knock on the door to move. So, uh, so Nabil, you get the uh, knock to move to South Florida to Fort Lauderdale and you uh, what's your assignment uh, out the gate once you get there well you know as part of being in Australia and having been at Microsoft for so many years I was always talking back to the corporate team especially to Mark Templeton and the team about how to work with Microsoft and what we should be doing and how we can go to market with them to, to sort of leverage their their presence obviously everywhere in the world and they said yeah yeah it's fine and then eventually the relationship between Citrix and Microsoft got a bit tense at the corporate level and they, therefore they knocked on my door and said, can you come over here, go up to Redmond and see if you can sort out this relationship. Since you know Microsoft so well and you know the people, maybe you can help us get this relationship back on track. Because it was getting a bit uh, tough in the marketplace, and especially some of the big deals Citrix had were sort of stalled because Microsoft has sort of made some noise about competing with Citrix because they just acquired from Citrix the, the, you know, the multi-user code base. They went and built that into what they called, you know, Windows Terminal Server Edition. And they were just about to go to market with it and they started to make some noise about competing with Citrix, which affected a lot of Citrix customers who thought, you know what, we better wait to see what Microsoft's doing before we go and double down on our Citrix purchases. Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of people tell this story, but it feels like uh, the first time I've ever heard it from you. And it, you were in the middle of what I would consider one of the biggest crises Citrix faced early on, right? Uh, so tell us a little bit more about how you navigated that. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was getting quite dire. I mean, the Citrix stock price had dropped down to $4.77. This is back in uh, 2002. And it was, it was nothing much than just some messages from Microsoft to the marketplace. But the relationship between Citrix and Microsoft was so important that anything that Citrix, that Microsoft did had a big effect on Citrix. So, I, you know, I came across here and I you know, went to Redmond and talked to some of the Microsoft people and I came to Fort Lauderdale and talked to some of the Citrix people before physically moving. I did accept the job and, and I you know, accepted that I would move my family over to the US. And they expected me to go to Redmond, of course, because that's where Microsoft headquarters is and to work with them. But when I came here and met with both management teams and the, you know, the product team with Terminal Services, I quickly realized the problem wasn't Microsoft. The problem was at Citrix. You know, Citrix just didn't know how to work with a big partner like uh, like Microsoft, even though they'd been partners for a long time and they negotiated some business and they exchanged some uh, some code, of course, uh, back in uh, 90, uh, 97, I think it was, when they exchanged the code and, and Citrix, Microsoft bought 
the code from Citrix, but the relationship was just not managed very well from a sort of people perspective, from an engineering perspective, from a business development perspective. And the bigger problem was at Citrix more than it was at Microsoft. So I ended up basing myself in Fort Lauderdale, obviously working with the Citrix team and working with the Microsoft team. You know, we agreed with, with Microsoft to actually move the people that were involved in that relationship out and bring a fresh set of people in and get them more educated. And it was very simple to uh, educate Microsoft about the Citrix value it didn't, you know, just took a couple of hours really. And they quickly realized, wow, these Citrix dudes generate a lot of business for us. And then to explain to the Citrix people how to work with a, a much bigger partner like Microsoft, that you gotta be patient and you, you gotta understand there's many components to Microsoft. It's not just the engineering team, there's a corporate team, there's a field team. And you need to engage with each one of those teams to make sure that your message is understood for their objectives and for their they go to market perspective, not just an engineering relationship. So that yeah. took me about six months to work that out. And then, you know, they had a partner of the year competition. They started to do that for their channel reselling partners and their ISVs. And we became partner of the year overnight. And in six months, we were Microsoft's first ISV partner of the year. I mean, that's an incredible turnaround. It sounds like, uh, you know, the Citrix uh, it, back in Fort Lauderdale, you were negotiating a bit of a crisis. Exactly how dire did it get with, uh, with Microsoft? Yeah, it was, um, it was very dire. I mean, it, I think it was uh, Q3 2002. Uh, for the first time ever, Citrix missed its forecast for the quarter. You know, it's a public company and it didn't put out a, a forecast every quarter. And that's why the stock price obviously tanked because they missed the number for that quarter. And there was a number of very large deals to close. And every one of them said, well, you know, with the messages Microsoft's making in the marketplace, we're going to wait to see what Microsoft comes out with, with their new... The code name was Hydra, if you recall. Sorry, Hydra was the, um, the, the conversion. It was uh, Bearpaw. Bearpaw was the product Bearpaw. that Microsoft was going to release, the next version of terminal services that would not need any third-party add-ons. So that's all the message said that came out from Microsoft. They had this sort of a, a case study from one of their customers that said, you know, we're trying the new version of terminal services, and it looks like we won't need any third-party add-ons going forward. So let's say it didn't mention Citrix, but that article was enough for the bigger customers to stall their orders with Citrix. And that Q2 uh, 2002 was the, uh, was the quarter that Microsoft, the Citrix missed the number for mm -hmm. the very first time. Yeah, so, so very talk about a little bit, of, I, I know you must have sort of done this great education on both sides of how to partner, right? And what the win-win was, but ultimately it's crazy six months later you're in line for partner of the year, right? Uh, so, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, the mechanics of that, right? It just seems like a, a, a remarkable thing. And I know obviously part of it was Microsoft realized, oh, these already cow licenses, this is a found revenue, right? Like there's, there's a huge, exactly. uh, there's a huge sort of found amount of revenue that's come, coming, drafting off of the Citrix uh, success. So talk about that for a minute. So I built, I built this spreadsheet. I mean, I, I actually, you know, back then I, you know, as an executive at Microsoft, I knew Steve Ballmer, the CEO. So I wrote him an email when I joined Citrix. Uh, and then I wrote him another one when I moved to the US just to let him know that I think there's more that we could be doing together if we just could work better together. He pushed that down to uh, your, good, your good friend, your chairman today, uh, uh, Vecti. Oh, and, uh, you know, Vecti and I, we had a meeting and I, you know, just sat down and, I built this spreadsheet showing them 
our revenue and how we get our revenue and how each time we win a deal, what it means to Microsoft, not just the TS Cal, the TS Cal, the server Cal, the SQL Cal, and then the office business that would continue as a result of more desktops connecting to the Windows environment. So I built this spreadsheet. And in the end, the summary of it is, was every dollar that Citrix makes, Microsoft makes 75 cents with no effort at all. No effort at all. And the majority of that was obviously the TS car. So it was a, an incredible revenue machine and a profit machine for Microsoft that I think a lot of people at Microsoft just did not understand. Right. They had this Citrix ecosystem of partners, great partners and sellers in the marketplace, really selling a technology that required Windows as a platform and every component of the technology. And once you prove that to Microsoft, they go, wow, okay. So, uh, and by the way, they said, what we're building in terminal services is just these new three or four new features. They're not really going to, you know, change the way people use Citrix. But I think the the marketing people with their marketing just sort of took liberty to talk about what this uh, third-party customer had referenced. Even though the product wasn't released, it wasn't in the market, they'd come out with this press release, which eventually they agreed to remove off their website, by the way. And I won't talk about the actual customer or the customer name, uh, but they took it off their website. And of course, the relationship got better and Microsoft went out with a different set of messages. And then the partner of the year was just, you know, us and every other partner of the year competing. And, you know, with the numbers that we could prove to Microsoft we were making for them, no other partner could prove anything close to us. And, you know, Steve Ballmer, I don't know if you ever heard him here, often would say, if you want to be a great partner of Microsoft, Go talk to the guys in Fort Lauderdale. They'll tell you how to do it. Yeah, well, that's great. You like went from sort of uh, a turned a disaster into a uh, gold standard relationship. So, congratulations. I'd love to dig a little bit more into sort of your time at Citrix. Like you, you got there early on and watched the, over 22 years. Watched it to grow into three billion plus. You obviously got to work with Mark. Talk to us a little bit about sort of the gold, you know, the sort of partnering ship ethos that. Uh, you know, I was at one time a partner of Citrix, right? And I, I can say from my chair, you know, I, I got to look at all of the different partner programs, Cisco, NetApp, Dell, all, all the different programs out there. And I will say there was a, a sort of uh, ethos around, you know, being the best partner uh, of your entire portfolio that Citrix led with. And I'd love this to sort of dig into so, sort of how that, vision came about and you know you clearly were part of that um, more on the alliances side but it clearly was part of the magic of citrix for so long so maybe you can speak a little bit about the culture that, that created that yes of course and a lot of it of course was around mark templeton i mean he was an amazing guy an amazing ceo and also he was very much a partner guy he really he came from the partner world himself so he understood what partners were all about. And I think when he was at Citrix, he built a great partner program. I think it was very clear to Citrix that you really can't do everything yourself. You know, Citrix had a bit of software, a bit of infrastructure software, which was pretty cool. It needed to sit on Windows. So you needed to work with Windows resellers. It uh, required other components such as devices and think clients and other pieces of software. And you know, the IGEL you know, of the world, et cetera, were, were part of that ecosystem. And then no one company like a, a Citrix could sell all those components. You really needed to resell it, put them all together and sell them as a, as a solution. I think that's what Citrix really understood very, very well. 
Mark Templeton drove that ethos in the company and set up that culture that we really got to work with our partners because they're the ones that provide the complete solution to the customer. So I give a, a lot of that credit to Mark. I learned a lot from him and how to, how to be a better uh, vendor for our resellers and make sure they, you know, they trained and enablement. I spent a lot of time at Citrix developing and you know, making sure we developed enablement material for our partners so they could be very well educated and they could you know, address the, the customer problem. And every time the partners became very good at it, it obviously took a lot of pressure off Citrix that they could go and innovate and build product while their markets ran the go-to-market programs. Now, today, of course, Citrix have got a very big enterprise sales force as well as the very, very large customers require vendor involvement. But I think the partner network for Citrix has done them very well. well. I think it will continue to do well going forward. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously you, you, you have a long career. You've got to see a lot of leaders. You've got to lead a lot of teams yourself. You've worked with a, a lot of the big famous names in this industry. You know, in your, from your perspective, like what is a good leader look like? Like what, what are the characteristics that you, you've seen in terms of you, you speak to Mark or Balmer or Bill? Yeah, I actually did get to work with Bill a few times. He was definitely a interesting leader, a very tough leader. And the, the three or four meetings I got to be in with him. Uh, Steve Bomber was also a very, very tough leader. Uh, Mike was a very different, he was a more gentle leader, uh, you know, more, uh, had more empathy with the, with the people around him. I think uh, all of them as leaders, they were all very, very good in their own way. They all surrounded themselves with smart people, um, often smarter than themselves. And they would recognize that these people were smarter than themselves in their area of focus. Now, I, you know, I never was an alliance guy, but I was always a sales guy. And I understood how to, how to you know, talk to people and deal with people. And of course, the biggest part of that is listening. So I did educate the team at Citrix about alliances through, you know, how to understand someone else by just listening to them and understanding what they need to do. And if you can help them do what they need to do, that will help you in, in return. It's very simple. Right. I mean, our customers at the end of the day, same thing. I mean, they buy your product, but at the end of the day, you're helping them solve a business problem and they need that problem solved with your product. Therefore, they will buy it from you and return. Uh, you know, that's how you help them. So. I think these very large, very good leaders out there are really just smart uh, listeners, and they are people that surround themselves with with good people that can, um, you know, work with them and and educate them more than the other way around. I think leaders know that they need good people around them that can't do it all themselves. Exactly. We've, we've, you know, I've worked for ones that think they can do it all themselves, and they don't last long at all. We won't mention names, but there's a few of them out there as well. <laughs> We have our favorites. So we love to talk about successes, uh, Nabil, and like obviously uh, you've had some great stories in terms of things you've done that have turned out great, but uh, I often feel like in my career, some of the biggest learning moments are actually when you fell flat on your face. So have you had any of those uh, that you want to share with us where you had a big learning moment? Of course not. No. <laughs> Uh, I, I have, I have, I have had them. Yes. Do I want to share them with you? I'm not sure. No. But I mean, obviously, you, you do. I mean, every every sales deal that you have that you lose is a learning moment, of course. True. And I've lost more than I've won. That's for sure. So that's a good thing. And I, you know, I, the developing the business in Asia was interesting. You know, we, you go into these countries thinking that you know everything about your technology, and you do, but you don't know about their culture and the way that they work. So in China, it's different to India, different to Korea different to even Singapore, Indonesia. So you need to, you know, just sit down and 
take time to learn from them how they work. And you got to be careful. You know, you can't work exactly how they work, of course, but you got to learn from that. So I definitely misstepped many, many times in, in my presentations in front of um, the, the Chinese community or the Asian community where, you know, things get translated and they get misinterpreted and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I've had my fair share of mistakes. I can very much relate to that, right? As a, an American running a German headquartered company, um, there's a, a level of sort of empathy you have to have in terms of the way things are done. And like you said, being a good listener and also, yeah, the, the translation is very challenging. Uh, it's in, yeah. in, in English to German and German to English, these, uh, the same word can be interpreted very, very differently. So this is sometimes, uh, part of what, uh, you need to be face to face, right. And have the relationships and have the trust, build that trust with people so that, uh, if there is misunderstandings, they know somewhere in the heart that your heart is in the right place. Right. And that you're, you're on the same path together. So yeah, I've. I can relate. And the same with business. I mean, the Microsoft relationship, and I talked about how we turned it around, but it, it went sour again back in the uh, 2012, 2013 timeframe. I mean, I didn't finish my story. I mean, I was in the US for six years. I did the Microsoft relationship. I took on product management for a couple of years of ZenApp, and we you know, rebuilt that product with a more focus on quality. Then my assignment in the US was over, and I went back to Australia. I mean, I headed back home, took my three kids, and we went back to Sydney, Australia, Staying with Citrix and still, in, you know, still developing the Asia Pacific region. I did a lot of work there, building China. We built an R&D center in China and a number of other things. And then all of a sudden, I got the knock on the door again. Right. So you were like uh, Nabil to the rescue again. <laughs> yeah, the Microsoft relationship has gone sour again. You know, Microsoft has built this product called Azure Remote App on the, on the cloud, They're completely isolated from anyone else working with it. Um, you know, Microsoft and Citrix were starting to butt heads on mobility. Citrix had Zen Mobile and Microsoft had Intune and the relationship got sour again. Actually, the business, you know, the Citrix business uh, was slowing down in 2014, 2015 from a product perspective. So they asked me to come back a second time to the US. Wow. So you, uh, you came in and uh, worked through that and uh, you were with the company what, up until about a year ago, a year and a half, two years ago, I guess you yeah, so I came back again. I had to convince my wife a second time to come to the US. Now she said, I'm only going to go to Florida, nowhere else. Right. So it was very clear that we could only come to Florida. And we did end up in Florida again. It's, it's such a great place. And she had, you know, said friends and she'd started her own business here. She's an image consultant. So uh, we came back a second time uh, with the two boys. The, my daughter got married and stayed in Sydney. The two boys came out with us and they're both actually working out in New York companies now. And yeah, the problem was Microsoft again, the relationship was going sour. So we sat down and we powwowed this time with, with Brad Anderson, who was running the, the, the business there. And we sorted things out and we got it back on track again. And uh, I think the relationship got strong. We built ZenApp Essentials on the cloud and we got the Citrix Cloud business running. I, you know, I was part of the team that built Citrix Cloud on Azure and got all that working again. And then you know, I did a couple of other roles at, uh, at Microsoft. I look after the architecture team. One of the things of building Citrix Cloud was great and we think it was a great product, but no one was moving to it, you know, and why? Because there was no uh, tools. There's no way to move. There was no migration information. So we built uh, a set of tools for our customers to move from the on-prem world of, uh, you know, Zen App and Zen Desktop to the Citrix Cloud of, you know, apps and desktop services. We built the Citrix Workspace app and I ran out of runway and that's when I left Citrix at the, uh, the beginning of 2020, just before 
Mr. COVID came around. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about COVID. How have you done through COVID? Obviously, you lived in Florida where I guess COVID didn't really exist, right? So you, <laughs> how, how has it been for well, you? It did exist, and I actually did get COVID myself in October of 2020. It was a mild situation for me, luckily, but I did get it. Uh, but, you know, it was um, it really was, it was a lot of positives with COVID as much as it was negatives. I mean, for me, my two boys in New York came down and they stayed with us in Fort Lauderdale. So the whole family was together for about seven, eight months. So that was a great positive thing. I had just left Citrix, so I was not working. I was doing part-time work. Some of the research work I was doing, I think I mentioned that to you before, mm -hmm. working with some of the um, industry uh, analysts and some of the uh, researchers looking at acquisitions and different components of the end user computing uh, ecosystem. I worked a little bit with Flexible IT uh, as well, helping them build their business in, uh, in, in the US. And then the Tahima job came along uh, just a few months ago. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about how you sort of see the pandemic affecting uh, the adoption of this technology, right? I mean, during that research, did you, do you feel like it's a tailwind? Is it, um, is it gonna help the big companies adopt more seats of VDI and DAS, or how do you see how do you see the pandemic and this hybrid work? What's well, I really I see it from the user perspective, and the and the users said, you know what, I can work from home. I had to work from home. My company forced me to work from home. I had to work from home. COVID said that we had to do it that way, so now I can work from home. So I think the users are saying to their companies, hey. I don't need to be in the office five days a week. I'll come to the office, but I would like to work from home two days, three days, four days a week, you know, whatever is needed. And I think that's what's driving it. This idea of hybrid work is being brought upon by the users saying, I can, I can be productive, as productive, and sometimes even more productive by working from home. So I think it's definitely here to stay. I mean, it was a mantra from Citrix and our ecosystem of partners for a long, long time. But now as a, as a whole industry is saying, this is the norm right. going forward. It's going to be a, a work from home concept and the offices begin to become a part time idea that we will go to the office. Uh, some people will need to be office in the office more than often, but more than others. But in the general, I think the whole idea of hybrid work and working from home or working from anywhere is here to stay. And it's really driving the momentum in our industry as well, as you know, Jim. In the end, use the computer. Yeah, so tell us, you now land at this Canadian uh, DAS platform company. Uh, right, right at this unique inflection point. T talk to us a little bit about Tahama, and uh, you know, I was super intrigued to hear it from your, you know, you're obviously a gift with messaging and uh, sales. So I, I heard it from you in a way that I had never seen, and I hope a lot of our viewers, you know, sort of hear it for the first time also, right? Like as something that's that's different than the other DAS solutions that are out there. So share yeah. with us, you know, what what you see there and. It's, it's very exciting technology. And by the way, I met Tahama through IGEL. Oh, that's great. IGEL is a I, great I connector. At, <laughs> I was at one of your virtual events, you know, attending one of your virtual events. And I saw this IGEL company, uh, the, the HEMA company there. And I thought, I've never heard of them before. Let me uh, go and investigate. So I did some investigation. I'm you I met James. With them. <laughs> Sorry, James, James and, the, and the CEO, you know, Paul Valet. Yes. And I got to meet with them and talk to them and realize, wow, they have got something here that's quite exciting. So, uh, and obviously I've joined them. So the, the technology itself is, is really DAS and VDI is just a component of it. Think of it as a, like, a, um, like a virtual room for the exchange of work. 
So they've set up these virtual rooms that can be really, they sit on AWS today and on Oracle, but they can sit on any cloud. It doesn't really matter. And they allow people to come and get work done. So whether it's third parties or your own workforce. So the whole idea of working from home is ideal for the Tahima solution. And they built, they built the components that you need to work remotely, like the security components, the networking components, the auditing, the single sign-on, the zero trust, all that's built into the product. And by the way, it sits on top of VDI platform. So it's a really you know, new level of DAS that's more complete. You can have a solution up and running in about two hours. It can be up and running and connecting users. And users connect to the room, to this virtual room. Then you connect your corporate assets to the virtual room. So it's very secure, very locked down. You know, the apps that you need, you put into the virtual room, the files that you need, uh, you know, connectivity between the corporate environment and the third party or the employees via these virtual rooms. And you think about these virtual rooms, you know, in the end, you end up with a virtual office in the cloud. I mean, today, when you go to an office to a corporate headquarters, you know, you go into the first floor and it's the, uh, you know, the executive area and the first floor is sales and the second floor is marketing and the third floor is finance and the fourth floor is the engineers and the fifth floor is the executive suite. Well, think about that whole concept of a building now in the cloud and you can go into a virtual room for sales a separate virtual room for marketing, a separate virtual room for third parties coming in, a virtual room for, for the contractors. It's amazing. I mean, it's really just the office in the cloud, and but they built their technology around the components that you need to make a complete solution. So it's not BDI, it's not DAS, it's a next level up. We're calling it enterprise DAS because people understand what DAS is, but it's really what an enterprise would need to allow employees to come and, and, and do work, whether they're third parties or their own employees. It's a very powerful solution. It's, it's very simple. They can, like I said, it can sit on any of the clouds. It can sit in, on top of any VDI platform. Today, it just it sits on AWS workspaces and or the Tahima desktop. But we can make it sit anywhere, and, and we just ported it to Oracle. We're working with Oracle, you know, for delivering a enterprise DAS on the Oracle platform. But we are going to work with Microsoft and all the other, you know, all the other players to make sure that the, the solution that we built on top of VDI can be enabled for any VDI company. And I got to imagine the security pieces of this kind of secure room, secure vault technology, this has got to be extraordinarily interesting for these companies that are getting faced with ransomware and all the uh, the breaches that we're seeing. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the partnership with IGEL is all about, you know, if a company really, you know, between the IGEL uh, OS and, and UD Pocket even concept, you know, connecting that to a device, connecting to a virtual room, all of a sudden, no matter what ransomware you might have had in your environment is locked out. You know, you can get employees to get their work done using an agile endpoint and a Tahima room without worrying about what else is in the in your ecosystem of people trying to break in or, or ransomware, et cetera. So, very, very powerful solution. I think the partnership with Agile is going to take us a long way. So I love uh, that we're here on the attic and we love to talk about origin stories. And one of the things that was unique for me when I heard this story the origin story of Tahama is actually one of a, almost a spin out, right? The, and if you could mm -hmm. share with our viewers that story, I think they'd be intrigued, right? That this technology was actually born out of, uh, I guess you go back full circle, your database uh, <laughs> career. <laughs> yeah, so T Tahima uh, came out of a company called Pythian. Pythian is a, it was a database, uh, you know, SI company, third party uh, database contractors. They had about 500 people all around the world you know, doing work in you know, with databases for very, very large companies, very, you know, security companies, 
finance companies, etc. And the customers said to the to PFM, listen, look, it's great that you're doing all this work, but we don't know where your people are. We don't know who they are. They're all third party contractors. We're worried they're touching very sensitive information and data. What can you do to make sure that you know what you're doing in our in our systems is secure and safe? So, so Piffian built this auditing, security, SOC 2 compliant technology to enable their third parties to connect and work with these uh, these corporate customers. And they decided to once they built that, put it on top of a VDI platform, to make it easy to deliver the service. So the VDI platform came at the end when they have to after they built all this security layer, this networking layer on top of their you know for their for their employees to work and connect to these very big corporates. So in the end, they built this virtual room. So the third parties come into the virtual room. The corporate data comes one way into the virtual room. And they go, wow, this is a great technology. They spun out and created Tahima. And they answered the concept of a virtual room. And today, you know, the corporate can have multiple third parties come into the virtual room. At the same time, the third party, you now the contractors that are coming in doing work, that can be connected to multiple corporates. So it's a, it's a two-way connection. It's very interesting. You can sell it to the the third party contractors, or you can sell it to the corporates and either one of them can come and use this virtual room and, and build the business. But the SOC 2 compliant, the security, the auditing, all that's in the room. So you bring people into the room, you turn the room on in a couple of hours, you bring people in, you connect your backend environment and you're up and running. It's very fast, very cool. It's using DAS and using VDI, but it's just very cool technology. And you know, now Tahima spun out of Pythium completely. Pythium still exists as a contractor company for databases, but now Tahim is a completely separate company. Yes, they're in uh, Ottawa, Canada, a great place. I went up there a few weeks ago. I saw it on LinkedIn. Uh, I went up in the summertime. Yeah, you want to go now, not let, not in uh, January. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they said it's like one month you should come, Nabil, and this is it. So come on up. Well, it's good. So uh, obviously you've worked for some very big companies, some very successful companies. Yeah, what's your vision? Uh, Tahama's a fairly small entrepreneurial startup almost. So that's got to be kind of exciting uh, to be uh, at a startup and with all of the uh, opportunity in front of you. What's your vision in terms of you know, where you can take this company? Yeah, so yeah, my experience, as you know, Judd has been you know, Citrix and Microsoft and before that, you know, Burroughs, very large companies. So it's, my, uh, it's, it's great to work in a startup. It's different for me. I'm learning a lot. Um, learning. I mean, it's very hard. It's not easy because it's uh, you know you got to make the numbers every every month, every quarter, and they're growing quite well at at the Hema, so, so it's going well. But it is hard work, and my role is across the board. You know, business development. You know, looking at the roadmap, looking at the architecture, looking at the alliances, building a channel, building an ecosystem. You know, Citrix Ready is a, and sorry, the Igel Ready program is a great uh, roadmap for us to look at how we can build partnerships across across the environment uh, for, for Tahima. So it's exciting. I think the, the DAS market, as we all know, is growing in a very healthy way today in the marketplace. The pandemic has driven that. But I think if the pandemic didn't come, it was going to grow anyway. We all knew that remote work was going to happen. The idea of people you know, commuting, commuting to the office every day, all day, wasn't going to go forever. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic's forced that to, to change very, very quickly. So it's accelerated the market, but now really in a hot spot it's doing very very well we're bringing on uh you know new people we're hiring people we're bringing on new partnerships we're looking for more resellers of course to help us uh, scale the scale the business i mean the idea is obviously just like citrix you know you can't deliver the whole solution you know we deliver a component of it we still need a lot of partners to help us do the 
the services work, they bring the applications in, et cetera. So it's very, very exciting. You know, the, the, the mindset of Tahima, the CEO there, Paul Valet has got a, you know, great strategic, he's a great strategic thinker. He's got a very big picture in mind of becoming the platform for the exchange of work. So whether you're a, a contractor, an employee, a third party, now we're going to build the platform where people can come and exchange work, the, the, you know, the, the individual with the corporation. Yeah. And that's the platform we're building. And it's very, very exciting. And I'm glad to be part of that organization. Yeah, well, it's a great intersection with IGEL. We also knew that the work was going to transform. And in 2019, we actually wrote a, uh, a mission statement and kind of a vision of how where we wanted to take the company. It was all about transforming the way people work and helping them, organizations, people, you know, work differently for the betterment of the of the planet. So it was like a very affirming moment as uh, we got hit with COVID and that that vision of helping transform the way the world works, right, for these better outcomes for people and the planet and organizations. It's really manifesting itself in a big way. So I guess uh, as we bring this to a close, Nabil, you know, there's a huge uh, community, as you know, out there in the end user compute space, and it's a very tight community. It's a community that uh, you obviously shared 22 plus years of your life, you know, synergies and summits and iForums and whatever they called it before that, uh, you know, and we've all been sort of uh, scattered to the, to the winds, but I, I would like to believe that we've stayed in touch uh, digitally. We're about actually to do a, a disrupt roadshow in 11 cities, mm -hmm. and uh, I think you guys are part of that in a few of the cities. Yes. Um, but I guess I'll, I'll, I'll let you have the last word. If there's anything you want to share with this community, uh, this, this show is watched by a lot of that world uh, that you know and love so much. So if there's anything you want to say out to your, uh, your friends out there in the end user compute community, here's your chance. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, by the way, the very first uh, Citrix event was called Synergy. Synergy. I knew I was missing one of the... Uh, <laughs> You probably were there as well. I was there. That was my first one when I just had just joined uh, Citrix. Yeah, I mean, the end user community, you know, the people that are working in it, plus the customers that have really committed their, their, you know, their future on it. You know, a lot of our resellers talk about their end customers and how these end customers have spent years and years building, you know, the whole VDI DAS environment. And it's a, a better way for their organization to deliver what they do. You know, there, there was a, an acronym that we used for a long time called MAPS. MAPS, management, access, performance, and security. They're the four things that you think about from an IT perspective. And the end user computing paradigm solves all those problems very, very well. You know, better management, better security, better performance, and uh, you know, and it's everything you know can run, <coughs> excuse me, can now run on premise or in the cloud, and it's, it's a hybrid world. So really, you know, we're all in a great space, I think, for all of us. I think we're all gonna grow together. I hope the community uh, spends time to look at Tehama and what we can do working with them. And we need an ecosystem of partners to be with us. Uh, we need our, you know, the larger customers out there to look at you know, the option of using Tehama. We're not trying to replace Citrix or replace VMware. We want to be partnering on top of that platform because we have we had another layer of technology. Think of it as sort of networking and security and, and VDI all bundled together to provide a complete solution for the end customer that's enabled instantly. So for our partners, you know, it's not a matter of spending you know, months or weeks setting up the environment. It's enabled immediately with the workflow that we built and instantly the customer can start taking advantage of this end user computing paradigm that we've all built together. So I look forward to working with everyone. I definitely want to thank you, Jed and the IGEL team 
for being such a great partner. And I look forward to the roadshow. I look forward to meeting with your partners and customers as, uh, as you do a great event every time and just looking forward. I think it's an exciting opportunity for yeah. all of well, us. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And uh, if you don't follow Nabil on LinkedIn, you should. I learn a lot from uh, watching uh, his posts. And uh, yeah, let's all, all stay connected, stay safe, and uh, stay healthy. Thanks so much, Nabil. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. God you bless too. you. Thank you for stopping by the attic. We're really excited about our next guest, David Smith, CEO of Teradici. He has an amazing story of transforming Teradici from a hardware to a software company and then recently selling it to HP. So as always, lots of interesting perspectives on tech coming your way from the attic. Please subscribe to the iGel YouTube channel and you'll get all the alerts about when the next episodes will drop. And until we meet again, this is Jed Ayers of iGel wishing you a great day, be kind to each other, and be well.